Welcome to the latest episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I'm Buck, and with me tonight I have the Professor. Hello. How are you going, Professor? I'm good. That's awesome. Um, what have you been up to this week? Looking at places to move out to. Ooh. And uh, the optimum place is going to be a nice, unassuming house with enough uh, clearance underneath it for me to dig a secret lair. Okay. Um, you're not going to go for a internal... Escape point through the garage? No, you see, I don't feel like I need one if I'm going to have a uh, a rocket-powered escape chair. Okay. I, I just have it set up with a sort of chimney so I can sh- shoot myself out through the roof. Okay. But isn't that what Santa would do just to get out just to get out of trouble? He would shoot himself from, to, from the chimney? Yeah, but he's not rocket-powered. He has to climb. I'm using technology. And that other, other voice we can hear. Catch up with you a lot easier than kids. And that other person we can hear in the background there is the DJ. Hey, guys. Were you feeling left out of the conversation? Oh, yeah. I feel so jealous already. <laughs> Don't know why. <laughs> so what have you been up to this week? Oh, I'm preparing myself for the, for Halloween tonight. Uh-huh. You, you guys had any um, people coming over to your places today? Nope. No, I've been locked away working on my final assignment, so haven't heard a peep from the front of the house. Nice, nice. Very I think nice. it's still there, but I don't know. I haven't haven't gone and looked for a while. <laughs> yeah, well, if you go out and you find out there's a sinkhole that's just opened up, don't jump in without packing some food. Okay. And talking about sinkholes, thank you very much for the segue there, Professor. <laughs> but um, unfor- yeah, we... we but probably not likely to find a warm hole at the front of my house, though, because of the gravitational requirements for a sinkhole, which is the reason why they think that if there is one, it's going to be near Sagittarius A, which is the topic that I've got this week. But before we get on to that, we're going to look at um, an update from the DJ. Yeah, so, uh, so last week... Uh... Francis Coppola and Martin Scorsese were up at arms about Marvel movies and how they're not real cinema. And as a response, James Gunn and John Favreau, Kevin Smith and and Robert Downey Jr. himself all decided to come out saying, no, they're wrong. Everybody's got an opinion, but you're wrong. You're just dead wrong. So while we were having that discussion, a couple of hours later, Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, came out with his statements saying, I reserve the word despicable for someone who committed mass murder. These are movies. <laughs> he said he doesn't take it personally. He ba- he continues on to say everyone's entitled to their opinions. Uh, to t- Scorsese and Coppola are the two pious pe- people I uh, have in regard. And But when fr- and he later goes on to say, but when Francis says those movies are despicable, to whom he's talking? Is he talking to Kevin Feige, who runs Marvel, or Taika Waititi, who directs, or Ryan Coogler, who directs for us? So, and he also, and he also um, continues on saying, frankly, the motion picture distribution business or the theatrical exhibition business worldwide has relatively thin margins. So he's basically okay, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Now, right there on that 
particular statement, yeah, I'm going to call him a liar. I'm going to call him a bald-faced blue <laughs> suffocating on the size of that lie that's choking him, liar. He is such a liar that he puts politicians to shame. He makes... <laughs> He makes Donald Trump and all the rest of those inbred, despicable scum look like saints. The thinnest of margins. Disney is making how many hundreds of millions of dollars off of each of these movies? Disney literally bought Marvel for $4.24 billion. (laughs) You don't get that by running on a thin margin. If that's a thin margin, I hate to see what he calls a fat margin. Like, oh my goodness. They talk about uh, no, they talk about the obesity epidemic. Go look at this guy's wallet. <laughs> For crying out loud, that thing's so fat that it makes everything else in the world look anorexic. He continues on to say, when those theaters run movies, not just like ours because they're uh- – other blockbusters out there too. They do exceedingly well for them and they make a lot of money on them. That actually gives them the ability to run other films that are, that might not be as successful, but there are people in different places that want to see them. That also is a lie. <laughs> cinemas don't make much money on, uh, on the film. Most of the cinema's profit comes from food and drinks because the uh, the distribution arrangement will be for the first X weeks that the cinema shows the film, 100% of the money goes to the studio, and then over time it shifts in favour of the uh, cinema. But by then the uh, viewership's dropped off because the movie's been out for a month. So the movie theatre jacks up the price and you end up paying $10 for a tiny little bag of Maltesers. So... Do do you really want to continue? Because... (laughs) Does he actually say anything that's truthful? Um, he, well, he later admits that he's coming off sounding more defensive than he wanted to. And well, he, he is. <laughs> uh, and that he's ultimately, he ultimately doesn't feel like he needs to defend Marvel outright. He basically goes on to say, I'm puzzled by it. If they want to bitch about movies, they're certainly, it's certainly their right. I don't want, I don't know. It seems so disrespectful to the people who work on these films. They're not attacking the people working on them. They're attacking the product, which is ultimately the people at the top of the food chain making the decision, i.e. Mr. Obese Epidemic Wallet, the head of the CEO of Disney, who's so delusionally challenged on reality that he thinks that there's no profits. Yeah, (laughs) I'm pretty sure if you go check his bank account, he's got enough to run a small country. So, and then um, during the weekend... Uh, Scorsese um, comes back to the fold and he clarifies his theme park statement by saying, well, look, the point is in terms of this film, Netflix theaters, what I'm talking about really are films that are made. He began, let's say a family wants to go to the amusement park. That's a good thing, you know, and at themes and parks, there's the cinematic expressions. They're an art form. It's something different from films that are shown normally in theaters. That's all. So in other words, a whole lot of waffle. I was going to say, it's a whole lot of hot air from all the parties involved that's not really doing anything further except giving us a laugh at how stupidly in it they are. And he continues on saying, for for them, my concern is losing the screens to massive theme park films, which I say again, they're their own art form. Cinema is changing. We have so many venues. There are so many ways to make films so enjoyable. Fine, go. It's an event. It's great to go to an event like an amusement park. But don't crowd out, go to 
uh, Greta Gerwig, and don't crowd out Paul Thompson Anderson and Noam Baumbach. And those people just don't in terms of theatre. That's how he ends it. Well, that's fair enough because he's saying leave, leave the people who are actually making independent films that are that have got some pretty decent quality to them that and aren't owned by Disney. So yeah, I, essentially he's saying the same same thing as he said last time. So do you reckon he's doubling? Uh, I've seen some articles describing the his state his recent clarification as doubling down. No, he's giving respect to them because he wants to make money out of Disney. Like, let's face it, they want to make money, but. Yeah, at the end of the day, you notice the fact that Coppola's just sitting there and just maybe he's not saying a word. The most you're probably getting from him would be a raised eyebrow of pitch. You want to step up toe to toe? Let's do this. Like, yeah, as as I said last week, his list of movies is pretty much one of the most phenomenal catalogs of brilliant, brilliance, just sheer brilliance in cinematic history that he puts Disney to shame. And let me also point out here, Disney is so pathetic with their movies that when they wanted to make the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, it was going to be based on the ride at Disney World. Which is not something you want to base a story off. It was going to be the whole Pirates of the Caribbean ride where it was the animatronic figures standing there singing yo ho ho and a bottle of rum designed for five and eight year olds i think it was and has been around since the 50s um yeah that was the whole premise of what they're going to base that movie on they then took that the script for that to oh, who was it the, the um was the producer for that uh Brockheimer? that's it he tore it up and threw it out he goes this is garbage this is pathetic. This is embarrassing. How dare you? And it's about rewriting it and came up with the Pirates of the Caribbean, which was a massively huge success and made them heaps of money. So, so much money that they're yet again rebooting it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but, you know what I mean? but you know what I mean, though? Like, they, they, they went with all the bits and pieces they were going to do. They, they had it all lined up and they just go, we need someone to do the production work. They've gone to Bruckheimer and he just laughed at them tore up their work, spat on it, settled the light, buried it, and said it was complete trash. Came up with something else that was amazing that was then overworked to death, as they want to do, and now they're crushing it by making it worse again. So, yeah, that's Disney's credentials. Let's make a movie based on our theme park so that we can make more money because we're so broke. Like Apple wanted to buy... Disney at one point, and they were told, yeah, I think the price was $100 billion or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. It was just some ridiculously huge amount that Apple could never afford because Disney is a license to print money. So I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm going to sit with Mr. Coppola on this one and just raise an eyebrow at their stupidity. Yeah. But um, interestingly, also what happened this week was a lot of Star Wars-related material that came out. So, for example, The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian trailer came out, um, I think it was mm-hmm. Tuesday. Yeah, and that was a very good trailer to watch, mind you. Okay. Yeah, and John, and John Favreau had a Q&A session a while back, and someone asked him about the pressures of stepping into the world of Star Wars. Uh, to which his response was, I don't feel the pressure except to the audience that's seeing what I'm making. I feel the pressure every time. And 
he later goes on to say there's a certain type of personality that attracts attracted to telling stories which is what you want to do something but the experience isn't complete until people that eat the meal slash watch the movie reacts to it uh-huh um yet another franchise that disney's trying to murder they say that they, they weren't going to make any more movies after um the is it the last jedi I thought it was a lot, I thought it was the rise rise of Skywalker. Rise yeah. of Skywalker, sorry. Yeah, that's the that, that that was going to be the last movie, but now there's there's still talk about a complete reboot of the series. No, no. Yeah, I, I saw serious? a rumor just the other day from on one of the one of the blog posts that I read. They, there's talk that they're still they're still working on it. <laughs> I heard the tr- I heard the, uh, I heard the report that. Um, the directors of Game of Thrones quit the project because they were too busy at one stage. With what? Ah, uh, they they were thinking of making another um, Game of Thrones series of sorts, but uh... <laughs> so they dropped off Star Wars to do Game of Thrones and got passed over for that because we just found out that um, someone else who was part of the Game of Thrones team has been given the role for prequel. making the prequel. Yeah, yeah. So they skipped off Star Wars so they could get back onto Game of Thrones and missed out on that. Where are they going to go now? Nintendo. <laughs> they can join the never-ending cast of <laughs> Smash Brothers. Okay, so we've got politician, ranting our politicians, <laughs> Smash Brothers. We need one more. <laughs> one more. I'm going to rant at you in a minute. <laughs> No, nah, but honestly, yeah, they've um, yeah, the two directors have left Disney to pursue a lucrative Netflix deal of worth two hundred fifty million. So <laughs> that's a lot uh-huh. of money. Yeah, but there's no there's no real margin of profit in these things. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Favreau was also saying that he wants to instill values into the into these um, stories in the Mandalorian. Uh, just make a movie that's fun to watch. Oh, it's not a movie. This is a TV series. Oh, TV series, whatever. <laughs> Just make it so it's enjoyable to watch with a good storyline. Leave the morals to the comics and cartoons. Like, we've had Captain Planet. Captain Planet is better than any Marvel comic. <laughs> he, 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 he. <laughs> he had a successful TV show before it was cool. Hey, I'm not knocking Captain Planet. Captain Planet was legendary. Let's so, is there any any more um, trash you need us to take out, DJ? Uh, the final thing he says is, it's great for uh, uh, the end. He says it's great for us who grew up with it and feel nostalgic, but really, you're trying to teach life lessons through themes and the conflicts that arise amongst these characters. What? <laughs> All right, hang on, hang on, hang on. I think he's confused. I think he's mistaking the Mandalorian, who's a bounty hunter, with Mary Poppins. <laughs> Don't you want your nieces and nephews learning how to be bounty hunters, Buck? Learning the value in being able to handle a gun and kill a man. <laughs> and make quick deals on, in the middle of a hostage negotiation. I can see the value in those uh, those abilities and talents, but do you really want some... Muppet that's thinking that a bounty hunter is the same as Mary Poppins. That's hang on, hang on. I know where we're going going wrong here. 
the other Disney princess, Mary Poppins. Not the one with the umbrella floating in the sky. Mary Poppins from the, the uh, that Marvel movie. Was it Guardians of the Galaxy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there we go. He's No wonder he's confused. <laughs> yes, just a reminder, just because a character says the name is Mary Poppins in one scene doesn't mean it is. But okay, okay. But here's the thing with all the Star Wars, with with mostly with Star Wars, right? It's always about like the messages that came out of the Star Wars movies, for example. Like the let's not, okay, let's talk about the uh, original trilogy. Kissing your sister is cool if you don't know who she is. Okay, yeah. Besides no, never, that, but never mess with the, the the big hairy scary person because they'll rip your arms off if you beat yeah, them but, at chess. But at, in the in the form of like, oh, there's always hope. There's always uh, in every dark uh, there in every every dark turn. There's a ho- there's always hope. That kind of message. Well, it like, doesn't always say that there's always hope. It says never give up hope. Yeah, but the point don't, being, don't is, go knock on Star Wars. <laughs> the point being, though, isn't that what John Favreau is trying to instill in these in this type of in these series? Though, like, wouldn't that be a good thing? And what's the bet that it's going to come across well or that it's going to be absolutely ham-fisted? I'm going with ham-fisted because I'm sorry, but Favreau is coming from a totally different place to um, um, where George Lucas was coming from. And even George Lucas couldn't do it right. Actually, um, Favreau, um, he, 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 I, in, I was talking to George Lucas about this, and this is what he says. Uh, that there that there are life lessons in these stories that carry on the tradition. And when he's speaking to George Lucas, he felt that the Western was the, was the genre that helped teach a generation coming of age about the value system. Yeah, the value system of get your hand off my money or I'm gonna fill you full of lead. <laughs> and uh, at, at the end, he says, and so one of the things he said he doesn't he was not to lose sight is that the main audience for the stories. This is the main audience for the stories. Well, who is the main audience? The next generation. <laughs> of who? Fans. Western fans? See, That's what he's... They, yeah. They're purposely going out of their way to make a spectacular dump on the fans that are already existing from Star Wars and trying to trash it. Like, they're, they're just killing what was already good. Like, Seriously. Star Wars A New Hope, when it was first released back in the 70s, grossed $800 million back then. So I'm sorry, but it was already a brilliant movie and that trilogy was absolutely amazing. Making the prequel movies, yeah, I think George had gotten a bit lazy at that point, but he still tried to follow it through, but he just didn't quite capture it. Keep in mind all the stories of how it was the crew of the first movies that saved him. How his yeah. wife at the time did the editing and turned people say she turned it from a, from a mess into a watchable movie. Well, maybe should have gone and asked her to be involved again. So yeah, yeah but anyway, it's, it's, let's move. Let's no, 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 no. <laughs> We're moving on. You've you've said enough horrible things tonight. <laughs> anyway, we started talking about wormholes before and how you couldn't have one open in the front of your house because of the simple fact that it requires an extreme amount of gravity, which is the reason why they think that it would be located in a black hole. And this week we're going to learn about how you can detect a wormhole because of the simple fact that while ships may never be able to pass through a wormhole like we see in science fiction movies, 
due to the gravitational pressures and everything like that, we will be able to detect it in pretty much the same way that they can detect black holes, which is through the gravitational anomalies that will affect the stars around it, which is the reason why they're looking at the path of S2, a star that astronomers have observed orbiting Sagittarius A, so they can try and see if there's perturbations and anomalies and so forth that will indicate the presence of either a warm hole or a black hole. So, yeah, because the gravitational effect of the stars on one side will affect the gravitational fields of stars on the other. So they'll be bouncing each other out of line at different times and in different manners. Whereas with the black hole, it should just be the same gravitational anomaly. So it'll it'll follow a smooth, even pattern. But because the rotation of the stars on opposite sides of the wormhole won't be won't necessarily be perfectly aligned in that way. At different times, you'll see skews and bounces in the path that the star follows. So, if they reckon that spaceships would never be able to go through it, do they have a theory about what kind of effect can, apart from gravity? Sorry, can you say that again? Yeah, so if they reckon that the spaceship can't go through it because it's too dense, what uh, what can, apart from gravity? Um, honestly, I've they, they've still a long way off being able to say what that would be. Um, just, yeah, I did read something somewhere here earlier. Sorry, I've been working on so many assignments, I'm getting a bit scattered-brained. Um, you would need a negative source, negative energy source. Well, not necessarily, but... Um, yeah, you just they're, they're talking about the negative energy sources required to keep a warm hole open, and we don't know how to do that. And it's also it's it's the paradox of achieving the speed of light. The more speed okay. you need, the more mass you need. So at the moment, our our understanding of physics means that it's nigh on impossible because the greater the acceleration and momentum required, the greater the um, mass required. So therefore, um, I, I think we can, I, we did it in, when I was in high school in physics, and you needed a planet that was over 10 times the size of Jupiter for mass with an explosion that was 25 times the power of the sun every second continuously for the next 200,000 years before you come close to approaching the speed of light. And even that won't get you there because as you approach the speed of light, your mass increases. So that's why everyone talks about going 99% of the speed of light Mm -hmm. because close enough is good enough for that sort of speed. But I do wonder if um, they could find a way to transmit information between both ends of the wormhole using the gravity waves. Um, honestly, that I it'd be pretty cool if they could, but the reality is that do you know where the other end of the wormhole is? No, that is the tricky bit. And also, so isn't you it- could you could be sending a radio signal through, but it wasn't. There was um, an incident where a radio signal that had bounced off the moon of Jupiter, I think it was, from back in the early 30s I think it was or early with one of the when they were first starting up with some of the radio telescope stuff and radio heavy radio transmissions 
using a dish had bounced off and come back and they, they calculated that it had bounced off the one of the moons of Jupiter, I think it was, it had yeah, taken up until that. just recently to come back. Uh, I doubt it would have been recently because like the Earth to Jupiter isn't that far. It takes about eight minutes at the speed of light to get from the sun to Earth. So traveling at yeah, the speed but- of light through the solar system still doesn't... like. Only takes a few hours, if I remember That's correctly. That's the speed of light, but we're talking about yeah. radio waves, which radio travel a lot waves slower. Radio the speed of light, though. Are they at the speed of light? Or at the very least, close enough to be negligible. Okay, I can't. I can't remember what all the details. But yeah, um, wherever it bounced from, it's only just come back. It wasn't that long ago, but yeah, um, yeah, uh, might have been here, the 40s or the 50s, but yeah. Here, uh, here we go, guys. Uh, radio waves are kind of electromagnetic radiation, thus they move at the speed of light. Uh, it's less than 30, 300,000 kilometers per second. So, yeah. How far is it to the Jupiter? Uh, give me a second on that one. So it took over a decade for them to get um, one of the satellites out there. Yeah, so it's like 30 minutes from Earth to Mars, I think. Okay. I, I don't know. I'd have to try and find the article again. It was a while ago since I read it, but yeah. Whatever it was that it bounced off of, he took. Um, I thought it was the moon, one of the moons of Jupiter. It might have been the moon, like one of the other planets, and that's how they discovered it. Yeah, well, I vaguely remember the uh, the discovery. I remember they were talking about Jupiter in part of the the article. Yeah, I think I. Yes, got... I did think about this earlier. The solution would obviously be send out some von Neumann probes, which are basically self-replicating probes. They travel to each star in the universe multiply themselves 10 times at each stopover and travel on to another 10 stars. Well, another 100 stars. And that way you can explore the entire universe with probes fairly quickly. So what you do is you hook them up and send out these probes, then start playing with gravity waves in the wormhole until you find the other end. And I don't know what you do at that point, but you found the other end of your wormhole. What is the wormhole you go through first is lined up with the wormhole in another universe or galaxy and it bounces through into another and then into the one you where you think it is then you wait for the the combine to invade through that border world because <laughs> right. it sounds completely ridiculous but we're talking about stuff that we've got absolutely no idea at the full extent of what could happen and the guys who were the, at the the upper level of understanding these things uh, still saying yeah to create a huge wormhole that's stable you need some magic like that's that's the one one line out of this article that is the simplest to understand for people who don't understand physics I, I got a question for you guys. Isn't there, when it comes to wormholes, isn't there some sort of time dilation situation as well? Like one year yeah. in a in the normal universe, going through a wormhole would be like 10 years accelerated. Well, that's it's all conjecture. Oh, oh, so, sorry. Uh, so please. according to uh, Einstein's theory of relativity, time slows down in the presence of a strong gravitational field. And you can see that with uh, GPS satellites they actually have to adjust themselves to keep stability with the time on Earth because they're in a weaker gravitational field. Mm-hmm. So being near a, a black hole would cause the perception of time to stretch out and likely the same for a wormhole if we're talking about the same sort of uh, densities. Yeah. See, the for all we know, is it could actually 
because of the um, levels of gravitational effect, it could actually go completely the opposite way. It could slow right, right down to almost stopping, but then it could go in the completely reverse direction because of some thing we do not understand yet. Like it's like when you multiply two negatives, you get a positive, right? Yeah. What's to say that at some point that with the effect of the gravitational pull, that time dilation, as you put it, slows down to an extent that it hits zero, but then you keep getting closer and the gravitational effect then accelerates it. Yeah. Yeah, that would be pretty wacky. Because we're talking about forces that we have no understanding of at the moment, and I wish we did because we're talking about stuff that's essentially what will make a lot of the science fiction into reality that we've grown up with. The instant we understand that sort of level of physics, we'll be able to travel to other universes. And keep in mind, it might take magic to keep a wormhole open. But Asimov's got that quote, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, that's. I was thinking that before just as myself. So, yeah. Um, hence the reason why I'm saying like, I wish we did understand that level of physics because then all of our science fiction becomes reality. But, yeah. For those who are interested in looking further into this, um, the paper has been published in um, Physical Review D, and there's some amazing artwork where they've got artists concept- conceptualised what they think it'll look like and all this sort of stuff. But um, Storkovic cautions that, um, however, that while the, the new method could be used to detect a wormhole if one is there, it will not strictly prove that a wormhole is present. So eventually one day they're going to have to actually go to Sagittarius A to see if they can, if it really is there and try not to fall in. Send me off. I'll keep the computers running. <laughs> I'll operate the cafe. <laughs> but anyway, let's move along. Um, Professor, you've got a tale of two shitties. I like that title. <laughs> It's about two games that flop. The first is uh, Fallout. Did you say flop or plop? Flop. Uh, so you missed out. You should have gone plot. I should have. Orcus Platt. Getting up punned by Buck. Oh. So the first one is Fallout 76. Bethesda announced their latest misstep, Fallout First, a subscription service to Fallout 76, promising about half a dozen features that don't actually work. <laughs> No, never. They wouldn't do that. What a surprise. Not, not with Fallout 76. <laughs> yeah. Da, da, da. Not, the, not the game that's given a resurgence to Bobby Darren's musical career after all these decades. You mean Bobby yeah. Vinto? Pardon? You mean Bobby Vinto? No, but is it Bobby Darren? Lonely? No, that's Bobby Vinto. Is it Bobby Vinto, is it? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, see, the DJ's been playing it out much and singing the song. <laughs> Song's so good. <laughs> but, yep, man. So the, uh, the hot fix has come out now and fixed a couple of these issues. But the key issues with uh, 76, well, we thought out first at launch, are that the scrap box, which was unlimited storage of scrap, and people were saying that they feel like the uh, loot rate was lowered just before Fallout First was announced. But the scrap box likes to eat your scrap and not give it back. Oh. <laughs> yep. So you can go and 
loot materials for hours and it would all be gone when you come back. <laughs> the other is uh, private servers. Theoretically, you can set a private server that only you can join. The problem is it is only a, not actually private, it's a friends only server, which is not how they advertise that people can join, basically uh, join off player to get into your private server. So if you want to go and do some machinima with a couple of friends, you can't stop every Tom, Dick and Harry on your friends list from hopping in and mucking it up. And these uh, private instances aren't even new instances. People have reported going around the world and finding areas that have obviously been interacted with by other players. So either they're not private and they um, just say that they are, which I doubt I... I feel like someone would have found out by now if players were actually in the world that weren't supposed to be there. It only took uh, No Man's Sky about 24 hours for two players to land on the same planet in the infinite universe and meet up and be like, guys, why isn't the multiplayer working? (laughs) So I feel like someone would have uh, worked it out by now. Hang on, hang on. Are you saying people actually admitting to playing? Fallout 76 and paying more money for bad products. Yes, they are. <laughs> My God. <laughs> people I've that... got a bridge I want to sell them. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the uh, the theory seems to be that um, you they have a, an instance which is private, and when it's empty, if you select uh, set a private game, it just drops you in there without bothering to reset the loot or the monsters or anything. So basically you land yourself in a dead world that you've already conquered. No, not you. That's somebody else. Ah. So kind of like Fallout 76 when it was first released. <laughs> a large empty waste of space. <laughs> I'm, sensing this, I'm sensing a pattern here. Really? <laughs> oh, no. Hey, DJ, have you bought this yet? Oh, don't get me started. Don't get me started. Well, you bought the first reg- one. Yeah, I bought it. And then later on, I was going, what did I What did I do? What did I do did, to regret? Didn't you get the, the fancy leather jacket and the, the plastic bag and the funny helmet? I didn't. You're the one that keeps implying I did, but I didn't. Well, you're, I, I just remember you talking to us about it at the time. You were always going on about it, so I thought you did. I was planning on getting the uh, Power Armor Edition, but it was all sold out, so I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, I'll just buy the Tricentennial Edition, which is basically DLC stuff. And yeah, <laughs> fat chance that worked. <laughs> oh, man. I don't understand why, why, they, why are they doing this? Like... Don't they already know that the game is a dead product? So why you put more money into this? Lonely. <laughs> yeah, it's really disappointing that these things seem simple and they couldn't get them right. To be fair, I don't even know who they've got working on their development team for 76, apart from a couple of interns, because this is the game where they managed to reintroduce bugs that they'd patched out a month later. It would be funny if, the, if uh, Todd Howard comes out saying, oh, we're using this to fund the next Skyrim game. I reckon they uh, they rushed it out, messed it up, and now they, they're looking at it and just trying to milk it for what it's worth because they think they can um, make a bit of money back after this complete unmitigated failure. <laughs> and there's not, much, there's not much margin in these things. Similar <laughs> to movies. <laughs> 
But the whole subs- gaming subscription idea that Bethesda is implementing, you reckon that it's way too late for them to do? I reckon it's just a, a dumb introduction for that free-to-play online game. If they'd announce this sort of thing at the um, at launch, I don't think people would see it as harshly, although the game is a complete flop anyway, so I really don't know. But I think the other key issue with um, introducing introducing a subscription is that people only have a certain amount of attention and a certain amount of money. And I can't imagine anyone would sign up for a game they're not actively playing. So if you want people to play your subscription game, you're taking them away from World of Warcraft or um, any other subscription game. You're fighting for someone's monthly gaming allocation because people aren't going to sign up for half a dozen games and only play one of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas if you had just a one-off payment, people might pay it. You get your money, and whatever they do with the game, you've got your money. It doesn't really con- um, concern you anymore. But if they uh, if they want to, they can come back to it a month later and not worry about having to pay for anything. So I feel like this is going to push away even more new players. It is an optional subscription, but it, um, if they're actually lowering the, uh, the loot amounts, then it's... Not looking good for 76. Imagine if they pull this sort of stunt on Elder Scrolls. Don't say that. But Howard <laughs> might be listening. I was just going to say, do you, want me, do you want me to come over there and slap you? <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. <laughs> Loose lips sink ships. <laughs> hey, I'm just saying, guys. No, 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 no. <laughs> You're being warned. I will physically hurt you if you even <laughs> consider saying it again. <laughs> Do not mess with the Skyrim. <laughs> but uh, I'm just saying, in all. DJ, you are lucky we have free healthcare in this country. <laughs> because you're going to need it when Buck's done with you. <laughs> You remember that line in um, Cool Runnings where they talk about in bobsled, your bones don't break, they shatter? Oh. You want to experience that? No, no, please don't. Okay. Don't don't give the the fake off any more bad ideas. Before the DJ digs himself any deeper, I should go to the other tale of a shitty game that I've got, which is, um, well, I've got an article here about the fall of Starbreeze. Starbreeze are the publisher in charge of Overkill, who produced Payday 2, which was a hit. It's got a lot of issues, but it was a pretty good hit for what it is. They end-of-life Payday 2 uh, about a year, maybe 18 months ago, and said, that's it. We're not going to do any more paid content for Payday 2 um, because the... Um, they'd end of life it and they wanted to work on new projects. But every Starbreeze project since then has been a bit of a flop. They, the main ones are also by Overkill, but they're just reskins of Payday 2. 
basically there's a the raid world war ii which is payday 2 but for world war ii skin and there's overkills the walking dead as opposed to the other walking dead game that um i don't remember who made it now but telltale games sorry telltale games no uh there's another one that came out about like within six months which is a a left for dead knockoff ah yeah so the uh, the left for dead knockoff is actually a decent game this one wasn't it had all the issues payday 2 had and none of the charm none of the uh fixes and both these games they drop support for pretty quickly so like it's a sad story really but starberry's seems to have had a rough history they've had a couple of projects that have carried them through the rough times but just recently they've uh, now had to come back and say that they're going to make more paid content for payday 2 because otherwise they won't be around to make payday 3 i love the fact that starbreeze's motto is going saying live and die by gameplay proudly into independent yet they've yet they've gone broke yeah, well, the advantage of being um, independent is that they're not, they, they don't have anyone telling them what to do. The disadvantage is that they they got lightning in a bottle with Payday 2, and they've pushed that to its limits. Like, they've added features that the engine's clearly not designed for, like driving a few years ago, and the game does not handle driving well. It's not a fun driving game. But mm. when they... Um, when they came back, they made bad business decisions that ultimately led to them being late, putting out their games, having lower quality releases, and they haven't been able to replicate Payday 2. Actually, it's kind of fitting that this story's bounced up against the Bethesda with Fallout 76 because they both seem to be doing the same thing. They've hit huge levels of success with a game, and then they've gotten lazy, and then they've gotten greedy. And then they got desperately greedy because suddenly they're broke. Yeah, I'm hoping Starbreeze can turn it around because I think they've got they've got it in them to make good games. They just have the wrong management, and they do have a, a fairly new CEO um, who hopefully is going to turn them around and not be the kind of CEO who's just there to pick the bones. If they, okay, as someone who's who enjoys playing Payday too. If they can bring it back into, like, if they're going to add extra content to it, it's going to add to the game. I'm fine with that. Um, <clears throat> there's your you want new missions, so that's fine. I, I, I don't mind paying a bit of extra money for that, especially if they're going to be making a payday three that's going to be in a similar vein to payday two. Yeah, I've longed for a payday three since the days where I was I spent ages absolutely hooked on payday 2 and um even though my laptop at the time could barely handle it i love the game even though it's very rough around the edges and i got back into it a few months ago and it's improved a lot but it is also pushing up against the limits of the engine yeah but i think if they <clears throat> decided instead to um uh, just went and checked in steam to see how many hours i've got of playtime 57 hours which is not correct at all like, I've 57 hours would be what I played a couple of months ago. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, I think I'd like to see more mission packs. They can do more weapons if they want. I think the game has a really nice variety of weapons, even though you, you tend to gravitate towards a couple, depending on whether you want to go loud or quiet, just the way the matter of the game works. But 
Mm-hmm. Um, they had a while where they were doing crossover mission packs with like Hotline Miami, uh, John Wick, Hardcore Henry. They had a lot of licensed content, which I don't know how well that did for them, but a lot of people like that. So if they can keep pushing out mission packs, I think that could be enough to keep Payday 2 going. Yeah. And I love the um, customizable aspect with the guns. Um, I like the fact that you can, instead of just, like, you can start off with a pistol with and get it with a silencer, but then you can upgrade it so that you have um, a submachine gun or an Uzi with silencer uh, instead of a pistol, and then you can go to having two of them. And then for your main weapon, you can have assault rifles or shotguns, and you can go up to having dual weapons for that as well. Yeah, and it, it does get a bit ridiculous, but eventually you unlock mini guns and flamethrowers, which yeah. don't make a lot of sense for a, uh, a heist game. But considering the um, the police force of... Uh, this was set in Washington, D.C. Considering yeah. the police force is larger than some small countries and has suicidal tendencies to throw themselves at your guns, they uh, work quite well. Especially with the, uh, like there was the mission where you got to get the safes off of the armored car on uh, after yes, the freeway. Um, so what was that? Uh, the armored car missions. Yeah, there's the armored car where it's been uh, where it was trapped on the freeway, and you got to go get the safes and get them to a heavy vehicle to escape with. You've got so many cops coming at you at, at that point, and some of the other missions like that, you need a minigun just to kill them. Yeah, and the. Uh... The level design, like, it works really well as a, um, a way you can go either loud or quiet. And it's a completely different experience, really. And even then, they've got missions like the Armored Cars, which are specifically loud missions. So if you're not into stealth, you can just go and shoot some cops, steal some cash. Mm-hmm. And I recommend if you do do that, you want to go on with, it, with as many heavy guns as you can get. Oh, yeah. I got a question for you guys. These... These two companies, do you reckon they're um, they're trying to be competitive by doing all these measures? Because look at the gaming com- gaming industry as of now; they're doing all these like loot boxes, surprise mechanics, um, microtransactions, well, all these. Do you reckon Payday hasn't got any of that sort of stuff? Like it's got um, it's got DLC content, but it's all like mission pack related DLC for the most part. Yeah, it's mostly missions, weapons, and characters. So you can get the uh, the John Wick character. It costs uh, a few dollars. But yeah. there were loot boxes for a little while. People okay. complained and they took them out. Yeah. So these, these guys do actually listen to the fan base. I was just looking. I've, I've got 102 hours since but, I last installed this payday too. But you see where I'm coming from, right? Do you reckon that all these methods that both game development companies are trying to adopt, do you reckon they're trying to survive in in a in the ever changing? Well, of course they're industry? trying to survive. That's what. No, they just decided one day. You know what? Screw this. Let's go wipe out our company, put hundreds of people out of work, <laughs> tank the stock price. Who cares? <laughs> Let's do that. That's fun. I think that's what Todd thought to after. That's, I think that's what Todd thought after making seventy six. Like, who cares? <laughs> Maybe he looked in the mirror and realized he wasn't the Hoff and he needed to change his wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> but you reckon that this sort of model will 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 endure, or you reckon they'll what sort of model? The business model of like, oh, we'll charge as much money as we can to our consumers. But they're not. 
Like Bethesda is, yeah, but um, with uh, who is it behind Starbreeze? Um, Starbreeze aren't taking that attitude. They're giving value for money, and if people that are playing the game turn around and say, "Nah, that's that's garbage," they pay attention to them. Like they've they've like they've generated a game that's getting close to having cult status, similar to Skyrim, really, with Payday Two. They just got to if they can just learn from the lessons where they've gone wrong and come back to what they were good at and just keep the same attitude that they've they've had with that. They're going to hit huge levels of success. The only thing I would suggest is maybe even make it so that there's um, community-based um, development stuff for them to help strengthen the game, and then that can help them with getting extra stuff for Payday 3. I mean, that's basically the Valve model for TF2 at this point. Well, so yeah, like Skyrim has got the same where there's um, community content being made with map like um, mods being made and that's and DLC that sort of stuff. Payday Two, I can see the potential for something like that there as well. Because let's face it, if you if you're in that if you put stuff up on that and it's crap, you're going to get shot down. Um, the Payday Two community is pretty direct and adamant in their response to garbage. You go on, you on a mission, and you're an idiot. You get told you're an idiot very succinctly, yeah. and it's not the toxic abuse you get in other games. I'll just say, idiot, pay attention. Or who did this? You're not supposed to be doing that. And if you say I'm only new at this level, they'll guide you and coach you through this that game. Like okay. I've, I've, I've sat there in missions where you have got people that are, you've said I've gone in, I've gone. Yeah, I've never done this mission before. Um, what do you recommend? And they'll tell me the loadout that they want me to take, and they'll tell me to stay beside a particular person, and I'll stay with that person. And they'll guide me through, and we'll do the stuff together. And yeah, that's I've only seen that sort of attitude in Payday Two, and the other one was Guns of Icarus, where they actually look out for the each other, like all the other players. Like if you're you're looking for games where they've got good um, multiplayer aspects with good communities, Payday Two and Guns of Icarus so far are pretty much the best that I've come across for attitude and so forth. Well, um, these two stories are there's a one thing I also like to add. I think both of these stories have the case of bad management and poor work, poor workers syndrome. Like with Telltale Games, uh, Starbreeze has the Telltale Games scenario as well. If you think about it, like how the workers were treated like horrible crap, were they? The workers don't seem to have any complaints. That article specifically says that the workers are happy. Okay. The problem is just that they're not making money from their products because of the uh, the management issues, which the article goes into detail of it, of them switching engines and technologies halfway through development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Rec- oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. I think okay. then we might move along. So it's been, been going for a while. Um, what game have you been playing, DJ? Um, I've just been playing a bit of Warframe. They've uh, come up with a Halloween um, scenario, and I've just just had a fun of playing that. Now, it was, um... what, was it actually the game, or were you just standing in front of a mirror? <laughs> very funny, Bucky. Very funny. Um, it was just uh, the game. The game. Ah, okay. So, what's happening with their um, Halloween? Uh, you get to you get to slice as many pumpkins as you want, and you also get chased chased by a couple of um crazy zombies. Okay, 
So it's it's a so it's fun. I get to slash as many zombies as I can and collect as many pumpkins as I can as well. Do you make pumpkin pie out of those pumpkins? Oh, I wish I could. Oh. Unfortunately, there's no pie recipe over at Warframe. Well, that sucks. Pumpkin pie is awesome. Soup's uh, better. Pardon? Soup's better. Oh, I like pumpkin soup, but a good pumpkin pie is hard to beat. Um, but what game have you been playing, Professor? I've been playing Call of Duty World War Two. <gasps> you too. Twinsies. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Hashtag uh... twinning. <laughs> Uh, so it's um a year or two ago uh well i think it i saw the preview for it in 2017 i think so yeah that adds up so the um i think it's 2018's cod game set in world war Two. i've been playing the campaign i tried to play the multiplayer but uh, it kept trashing every time i clicked multiplayer so i'm not sure what to do there um but the uh, the campaign I'm really disappointed with. Why? It's pretty. It's got nice sound design, but it's just a typical American soldier D Day story, just like every other World War Two game out there. Like there's so many other World War Two stories to tell, so many other fronts, but nope, it's just D Day. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about it, Buck? Um, yeah, as you said, but like I'm in, I'm enjoying running around and shooting Germans. I'm loving the choice of weapons in this as well because you get to pick up different guns as you come across them, including the MG42 emplacement guns. You actually get to pick them up and detach them from the emplacement and carry them around, which, let's face it, it's an awesome option for a gun, um, especially when you're going into a bunker. Um, the other thing is... I've gotten to you. We they actually have flamethrowers available for you to use as well. Which yep. once again, if you're clearing out a bunker, a flamethrower is a good way to start. Lots and lots of fire. Then get yourself an MG42 just to kill off anyone who survives. We haven't had any shotguns though so far, which is one thing I'm missing. Yeah, the first shotgun I found, I think, um, I found in the in one of the Paris levels. Okay, I haven't got that far. Yeah, so um, the guns feel nice though. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels a lot better than I was expecting for a COD game. I haven't played a COD game in probably 10 years, but um, I was never a huge fan of how they felt in the past. But the guns feel really nice, and there's a real impact to hitting an enemy. They have um, really detailed death animations. Mm-hmm. And, like You'll shoot someone, they'll get injured and fall over, and they'll struggle back to their feet and try to shoot back at you. Yeah, I've noticed... Um where you shoot them has a greater impact level than a lot of the other games as well. So if you shoot someone in the leg or the arm, they tend to do the Monty Python, tis by the flesh wound, and keep going. Whereas if you um, shoot them in the centre of the chest or the head, it counts as more of a kill. And, uh, when you do come up against the enemy flamethrowers, Buck, aim for the tanks. Because uh, that old video game classic, shooting them in the tanks and making a catch fire is still there. Okay. Um, so what's I've, your biggest flaws in the game go, guys? Um, for me, it's just a little bit glitchy, but that might just be because my laptop's getting a bit older now. Um, yeah, well, I've got it. a fairly high-end computer, and um, I only upgraded it a couple of months ago, and I'm still having a lot of uh, crashes and slowdowns. Okay. Particularly when uh, there's a lot of fire on screen. Yeah, I've, I've found a couple of um, desyncing between the audio and the 
video of the game. So I've had um, the sergeant saying something to me, and if I'm looking at him, his mouth's moving out of sync to the um, audio. Yeah. But, um, yeah, generally I just try to look away and it's not as it's not a problem for me as much. But um, with yeah, the... Yeah, I had that during the, uh, the scene with all the fire as well, so... Yeah. Yeah, with the flamethrowers, I'm finding a couple of levels. <laughs> yeah, with the flamethrowers, I'm I'm just finding shoot the guy in the head. It tends to stop him. Either that or have the MG42. That kind of stops him as well. Yeah, more Dakar. Three three or four shots from that tends to take down pretty much anyone. And I like the fact yeah. that you're able to um, take control of the enemy weapon and placements on the armored cars and so forth as well. That's been helpful, particularly so with you- the pesky um, Stuka dive bombers. So I take it you guys have, uh, are going to play the multiplayer aspect of, the, of that game? Well, I haven't tried, and Professor was just saying it keeps crashing on him, so... Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, I uh, I wanted to try the zombies mode because um, I'm not a huge fan of multiplayer COD, but I enjoy zombies, but it kept crashing on me each time I tried to do it, so I'm not sure what's going on there, and I wasn't able to find a solution in time to play for this recording. So, um... How many nudie beanies are you going to give Warframe this week with the Halloween special? Uh, I'll give it 3.5. The biggest flaw for that game, by the way, it's it, it gets glitchy at times when when the number of zombies get, get more and more. So, yeah, 3.5 out of 5. Okay. Fine. Okay. Uh, Professor? Yeah, this is a hard one because I really like the um, the gun effects. So I guess I'd go for a seven because the uh, the gun effects and the way the enemies react are really nice in the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't expect that to carry over to the uh, multiplayer because I can't imagine you'd incapacitate someone for five seconds in a multiplayer game just by shooting them. But um, the so the gunplay in the campaign feels really nice, but the plot is just hugely disappointingly cliche, mm-hmm. and it keeps crashing on me. So not too pleased about that yeah the actual the, the actual mechanics when it's playing um yeah the the physical like as you said the gunplay um the reaction for when you're shooting the target and everything like that um i'm loving it the storyline it's it's a bit overdone um i'd love to see them change up the, the storyline to being like a polish resistance fighter fighting against the nazis and fighting the way that the resistance guys did there, where that would probably be a lot more fun. But yeah, yeah, just, I've always wanted a good World War Two guerrilla game. Like that, there's like there was that, um, that sabotage or whatever you played uh, as sabotage. A, I haven't played that, but it looks good. The French resistance one, where you're in Paris and you run around and you're dropping, you're, you're blowing things up and killing Nazis, and that that was yeah. a lot of fun. Something something similar to that. Okay. On the Eastern European side of things, I reckon that could be really cool. There was a um, uh, not an FPS game, more of a tactics game sort of um, thing that came out. I don't remember the name of it. It's just recent, but it is uh, the Polish Resistance. But that's it. It's Warsaw. Okay. What? Uh, just a curious question with COD um, World War Two. Which theater of war are they fighting in? In like which battle? Well, the first mission is the D-Day landings. And then mm-hmm. you push into the um, into France, and uh, there's a couple of missions. I think they're supposed to be set in Paris. So I'm not sure the story is a bit one for details, but 
then you uh, go back out of the city and battle the um, an armored train and a few other things like that. And judging by the um, the sort of level icons, it looks like eventually you go to Berlin. At a uh, the last mission on the screen has a building that looks a bit like the Reichstag. Okay. Um, yeah. Look, honestly, um, overall, I can see there's so much potential in it. So I'm going to give it. Eight. I'm going to give it eight out of ten. Oh, he's things. moving up to tens now. No, look at the fives. <laughs> oh, I'm just. I'm. I'm going to copy the professor on this one. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, guys, uh, the saboteur. Um, it, it. Yeah, it's called the saboteur. Yep. Yeah, no, I just put it up. Uh, okay. Yep. And Warsaw. Eight? No. Oh, uh, but yeah, the the Warsaw. The Warsaw is the other game. Yeah, professor said that. Yep. Anyhow. Yep. Moving along, unless there's something else I've missed there. It's time for the shout-outs. Um, 27th of October, 1962, Vasily Alexandrovich Archipov saved the world. If you don't know who he is, he's the Russian naval officer who refused to fire a nuclear, a nuclear torpedo at an American aircraft carrier during the standoff at the... At the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, once again, it was down to one man who had the spine and the nerve to say, no, you're all being naughty, naughty children, you need to go home. On the 27th of October, 2019, we have League of Legends turning 10. Yay, that's an awesome game. (laughs) Now, is that a sandbox or a mobile? (laughs) <laughs> sorry for those folks who don't understand that the dj kind of asked us that question once and yeah i'm not letting him live that down oh no no, 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 no context context wise it, i was basically asking about the icarus game whether it was whether i would call it a moba game and you guys were laying down on me on that game well yeah, because you were wrong is it is it a moba oh with the icarus game no it's not yeah and you wonder why we paid out on you. <laughs> um, 28th of October, 1726, the novel Gulliver's Travels, or Travels into Several Remote Nations of the World, in four parts, by Lemuel Gulliver, first a surgeon and then a captain of several ships, is a prose satire was published. It satirizes both human nature and the traveler's tales literary subgenre. It is Swift's best known full length work and a classic of English literature. And a lot of people think it's about going to an island with tiny people. It's not. It's about going to an island with tiny people and also other islands where other people live. The mm-hmm. tiny people is just one part of the story. It's an awesome book to read. On the twenty eighth of October, nineteen sixty five, the Gateway Arch construction was completed. It is the world's tallest arch, the tallest man-made monument in the Western Hemisphere, and the Missouri's tallest accessible building, built as a monument to the westward expansion of the United States and officially dedicated to the American people. Um, yes. Sorry, I've just lost my spot there. I haven't updated something. Um, anyway, moving on. On the 29th of October, 2019, Shigeru Miyamoto 
is being awarded the Person of Cultural Merit by the Japanese government on November 3. So it was announced on the 29th of October, um, which is recognised nationally as Culture Day in Japan. And the award is the highest honour a person in a creative field can receive in Japan. And Miyamoto is the first person in the video game industry to receive the honour. Do you want to get one of those, Professor? It would be nice, but I feel like it excludes me because I'm not Japanese. Okay. Oh, there, there could be the Australian edition to that. With our government who cancelled the, uh, the funding for Australian game developments, not likely. Uh, you could t- see, you could you could do as a contribution to the art world. Yeah, see, that's where Japan's already doing that, and that's the reason why this would be more fun. Winning winning the award from the Japanese would be a, a pretty good honor. Winning it from the Australian government, I think they're trying to tax you somehow. <laughs> Moving like along a- before we get in trouble for uh, picking on the Australian government, they tend to not like competition on being picked on. Um, they do it so well themselves. On the 21st of October, 2019, Josip Ehrlich, an American character actor, um, passed away. He died from complications of a fall at the age of 98 in River Edge, New Jersey. He was best known for his role as Bancini in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, despite having few lines in the film, um, his major scene came in the form of an improvisation by Jack Nicholson for the ba- the patient's basketball game. So he was actually the guy that Jack Nicholson sat on the shoulders of. Um, yeah, sad to see he's gone. Um, on the 28th of October, 1703, John Wallace. English clergyman and mathematician who is given partial credit for the development of infinitesimal calculus, um, unfortunately died at the age of 86 in Oxfordshire. We don't actually have how he died. Um, So maybe it was peacefully in his sleep. Um, He, between the years 1643 and 1689, he served as chief cryptographer for Parliament and later the Royal Court. He is credited with introducing the symbol uh, that we use for representing infinity to the world, and he similarly used one over, infinitis- over infinity for infinitesimal. He was yeah. a contemporary of Newton and one of the greatest intellectuals of the early Renaissance mathematics. He did a good job pulling one over on everyone there. Oh, don't, I'm too tired to come up with a new character i'll just use an eight turned on its side yeah it worked uh, it's a good symbol it does what does the job the thing that i like is the fact that he was a contemporary of newton and he was still considered one of the greatest intellectuals of the early renaissance yeah it's kind of like putting an oak tree next to mount everest and saying that's a massive tree um on the 28th of october 2005 uh, richard smalley the Gene and Norman Hackerman Professor of Chemistry and a Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Um, unfortunately died at the age of 62 from leukemia. Um, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the discovery of a new form of carbon. Buckminster Fullerene, 
also known as Bucky Balls. Not mine. Sorry, they're still in my pants. <laughs> um, on the 28th of October, 1982, Matt Smith, an English actor, best known for his roles as the 11th incarnation of the Doctor in the BBC series Doctor Who and Prince Philip in the Netflix series The Crown, was born. Um, he was born in Northampton. So, yes, awesome guy. I thought he made an excellent Doctor. On the 28th of October in 1967, Julia Roberts, an American actress and producer, um, the lead actress in the film Pretty Woman, and she's been in many other movies, won three Golden Globes uh, from eight nominations, um, reportedly has been nominated for four Academy Awards for acting, winning the Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance in Aaron Brockovich. Uh, she was the highest paid actress in the world throughout most of the 90s and the first half of the 2000s. Really? The first half of the 2000s? We're not even halfway through the 2000s yet. What do you mean the noughties, DJ? Oh, the, um, she was in um, Oceans, the Oceans movies. That was in 2005? Yeah, that's the noughties. When you say the 2000s, it means the whole millennium, I thought. Anyway, and- she was born in Smyrna, Georgia, USA. I think it's USA. You didn't say USA. Is it Smyrna, Georgia, USA, or Smyrna, Georgia, Georgia, Georgia? I've read uh, Georgia, USA. Okay. Just had to confirm that. On the 28th of October in 1955, um, Mr. William Henry Gates III, also known as Bill Gates or Uncle Bill, was born. He is the amazing visionary who gave birth to Microsoft and change the face of computing to what it is now instead of... I don't know, it was pretty ugly before Microsoft developed the um, disk operating system, or MS-DOS. Um, he was born in Seattle, Washington. It's amazing. He's one of the, pretty much the richest man in the world, and he still lives in the, the same city that he was born in. Yeah, but this is a serious first-world problem. He has a heated driveway, so he doesn't need to shovel the snow off it. But he has to turn it off because the geese like to sit on the hot spots and shit all over the driveway. Well, you know, he could turn the heat up a bit and cook his geese. (laughs) Bye-bye, thanks. So so long Thanksgiving dinners. No, no, that's turkey. I know, but a good alternative to turkey, cooked geese. No, you have um, geese for Christmas. Oh, turkey was with Christmas. No, in England it was... um, Geese. Ah. Was a, it was the Americans who introduced Turkey. Anyway, um, moving along. On the 28th of October, 1971, Prospero becomes the only British satellite to be launched by a British rocket. It was designed to undertake a series of experiments to study the effects of space environment on communication satellites and remained operational until 1973, after which it was contacted annually for over 25 years. They don't build them like that anymore. On the 28th of October, 1994, we need a drum roll here. Stargate was first aired. The film is the first release in the Stargate franchise. The plot centers on the premise of a Stargate, 
an ancient ring-shaped device that creates a wormhole, enabling travel to a similar device elsewhere. Ooh, in here it says universe, but uh, is it just the one universe? The central, the film's central plot explores the theory of extraterrestrial beings having an influence upon human civilization. Only if the penguins allow them. Remember that. <laughs> and the then we 20- have, a, we have a three things uh, for tonight. Thank you for playing. On the 28th of October, 2014, a rocket carrying NASA's Cygnus CRS Orb 3 resupply mission to the International Space Station explodes. Seconds after taking off from the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport in Virginia, this flight, which would have been its fourth to the International Space Station and the fifth of an Antares launch vehicle, resulted in the Antares rocket exploding seconds after liftoff, which we've already said. This isn't where they got the spaceport for Virgin's, or Richard Branson's spaceflight stuff, is it? Is that I don't remember, but I think this is the uh, the rocket explosion featured in the TV series Heston's Mission Impossible. They yeah, but it's not... The- Sorry, I was just going to say, it's not the same spaceport, though, is it, as the, the one that um, Branson's using? Yeah, I don't remember. Okay. But, um, for Heston's Mission Impossible, they get the celebrity chef Heston to cook a gourmet meal for the British astronaut, mm-hmm. and the first shipment ends up blowing up during the launch. But he did eventually get it to him, because I remember seeing that episode, and yeah, they quite enjoyed the food. Although I'd hate to pay the delivery fee. Yeah, Uber Eats is expensive when you're in space. Anyway, I think that's pretty much everything for the week. Um, I haven't missed anything, have I, as far mm. as you two are concerned? No, I don't think so, no. No, but will the DJ take it away with the uh, the details? Uh, yeah, they can find us on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page. Uh, they can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. And, yeah, uh, yeah you've, you've got something to say, don't you, Buck, for the upcoming events? Yes, you can also find us coming up soon at Supernova, sitting at a table or wandering around, uh, enjoying all the amazing cosplay and fun and games that are happening at Supernova in Brisbane. Not well, it will be this Saturday coming for when you guys get the recording because it'll be coming out, yeah, on Sunday or Monday. So, yeah, we are going to be at Supernova. Come and say hello. We have Is a game that we you're will be playing. I couldn't resist the little of the Lionel there. That's okay. At least you're in tune this time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, well, if that's it, yeah, um, come along and say hello. We've got a game that we're going to be playing. Uh, if you want to know more, come and say hello. Come and find us. We don't know where we're going to be yet ourselves, other than at a table on Saturday. Um, what what time is it? Were there, DJ? Uh, 10 to 12, and then we'll be around the arena after 12. So 10 to 12 or 10 to 1? 10 to 12. Okay. If you can't make it to see us at the booth, you can, you'll still be able to find some of the other That's Not Canon podcasts there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can also meet the podfather over there as well. So, yep. Um, as usual, take care of yourselves, look out for each other, and stay hydrated. Hooroo. See you guys. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.